I'm not gonna look at you anymore. Uh, well. <laughs> you make weird faces at me while we're trying to record, and you distract me, and I don't know what you're talking about. We got these big pop filters in front of us. There's no way you can see my face. No, I can because you lean away from the pop filter. So I can see. All the better to see you with, my dear. I don't want to see you. Hi, I'm Kim. And I am Steve. And you're listening to Why Not to Get Married. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we've been locked in and quarantined a little <sighs> bit too long tonight. Anyway, welcome to an hour of your life. Um, I actually, aside from my husband, am really having a good, pretty good week. Um, I finished my school. Yay for me. So Yay for us. So now, as long as you don't expect me to do a very good job, I can medically code for you. I wouldn't say that. Well, um, I, I haven't, so I'm not certified yet. I, that's another okay. thing that I have to go and do eventually that I am terrified about, but I'm not even going to think about it until after the first of the year. You know what you got time to do right now? What? Make Christmas cookies. <laughs> I am not making us. I actually am going to make Christmas cookies this weekend. Like it's on my schedule. I have to make 21 bins full of Christmas cookies, but that it's not for us. It's for the yes, people because I work with. I don't need Christmas cookies. Because we've talked about before the COVID-19. I'm way past the COVID-19. <sighs> I went and bought all new clothes back in like June, July. And they they were a size bigger than what I had been wearing. And they're already like they're tight. I am going to start exercising regularly. You've again. said that for months. Yeah, but I'm serious this time. Yeah, like you were serious last week. Anyway, it's officially the holiday season. Yes. As you can tell <laughs> by the love in the room. <laughs> so, and we have some really good content ahead. Um, we're covering various traditions from a couple of different religions and walks of life, uh, including Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, and of course, Christmas. Um, my goal, we were kind of talking about it a little bit last night, kind of planning our attack um, my goal is to kind of cover the fringy parts of the holidays, uh, especially Hanukkah and Christmas, less so Kwanzaa because it's a new ish holiday. Um, and so there really isn't, you know, the history aspect of it as much. Um, so when we cover Christmas, I think everyone knows the Christmas story out of right. Matthew. We're going to try, and Luke, we're going to try to cover more of, uh, like why what were the was Romans going on doing, and what was yeah. going on at that time. Like yeah. why were the Romans doing a census? Um, what what was going on in Rome back then? Uh, when we talk about Hanukkah, we're going to talk about who were the Maccabees and why were they locked in a city and what's going on. But It's going to be more of a historic, not, not so much of a religious yes. perspective, but more right. of a time historic type thing that was going on yes. during this period during exactly. those periods yeah exactly which is why we're not going su- i mean we're going to talk about kwanzaa today but like i said it started i think in like 1976 or something it was um it's well, a, we'll get to that yeah it's a relatively new holiday so you you guys were a lot of you were but, alive when kwanzaa was invented so you know what was going on before we go there let's talk about one of your favorites for oh, this time of year i love it so much um it really should come as no surprise that one of my favorite uh, things during this time of year is the tradition of Krampusnacht, which is a German word that really translates literally to Krampus night. 
Um, he looks like a cranky old guy. Uh, go yeah, he... push pause and go Google up Krampus right now. I am so excited. I got a Krampus ornament in the mail last night, and it is covered in glitter, and it is, it's cute yet horrifying, and it's hanging on our tree right near the Bigfoot statue. Just to let ornament. you know, I go out, and whenever the Amazon guy or the UPS guy comes up to the house, I tell them, no, we've moved, and to go away and to send anything that comes here to send it back. They know better. They know better. I keep them in business. Yeah. So Krampus kind of wormed his way into the American consciousness after the release of a 2015 film that bears his name, but he's actually a much older figure. For those who are unfamiliar, Krampus is sort of the anti-Santa, whereas Santa brings presents... Santa brings presents to all the good little boys and girls at Christmas time. Krampus comes and visits all wait, the naughty wait, wait, kids. Wait. Should we give a warning for this? For kids? Uh, yes, actually. Okay. If you are, are under the age of, I'm going to say 15. 15. <laughs> go, don't listen to this show. Because there are some spoiler alerts about the magic of Christmas that you don't need to hear. 15, so, huh? Yeah, well, I'm carrying on the side of caution. Um, So turn off this show uh, and go do something else. Okay. All right. So anyway, so Krampus comes and visits the naughty kids. And don't think that he's just bringing coal either, because traditionally Krampus brings a switch and he beats the kids. Now, the Krampus figure is thought to date back to pagan rites in Central Europe, which actually is going to be kind of an ongoing tradition in the Christmas stuff is a lot of it was swiped from paganism and pagan ideas and kind of made uh during and i think we talked about this a little bit last year but um in the conversion of pagans to christianity there kind of was some morphing to make christianity a little more palatable um and krampus kind of was part of that so he is um he trade traditionally dates back to pagan rites in Central Europe. He's typically portrayed as a half man, half goat creature, kind of similar to Pan. He's covered in hair, and he has a long, lolling tongue and fangs. And he might have ties to the horned god that's a central figure in Wicca and other pagan religions. He's not a he's not a, a friendly looking guy. I don't think he's supposed to be. No, you're supposed to be afraid of him. Over time, Krampus became sort of a demonic figure as the celebration of Yule became the holiday of Christmas, which you can learn more about if you check out episode 21 of An Hour of Your Life. On December 6th, many parts of Europe celebrate the Feast of St. Nicholas, and people gather together to exchange gifts, share a meal, and generally make merry with one another, like what we do on December 25th. However, the night before, on December 5th, um, which is Krampus night or Krampus knocked, the wicked hairy devil appears on the streets. Sometimes he accompanies St. Nicholas and sometimes he comes on his own, but Krampus visits homes and businesses bearing those infamous bundles of birch switches known as a rootin. And just as Santa is a little different depending on where you are, so too is Krampus. Traditionally, he's a little more scary and he's sometimes sexualized, often seen pur- pursuing buxom women, but in modern times, he's been made a little more cartoonish. So, and now, I love him. My favorite Krampus story, though, is when you were teaching the kids about Krampus. Uh-huh. And I'm talking about the kids from the Nook. 
And uh, indeed, oh, you you got to tell the the Hadley story on this. So one. Uh, our granddaughter Hadley was three at the time. She was potty training. Um, I, I guess she was a young three. Um, she was potty training, and so we were. I was talking about Krampus because I was big on including um, different cultures and different. Uh, religions and stuff in this time of year and educating the kids about it. So I was telling him about Krampus and Hadley was so afraid. Um, Pamela sent us a video of Hadley. She refused to go into the potty by herself and go sit on the potty. And she just sent us this video of this super sad looking little Hadley sitting on her little potty. And Pamela said, Hadley, why won't you go potty by yourself? Hadley said, cause Krampus might get me. And Pamela said, and who told you about Krampus? Grandma. So I, I got in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but Hadley, though. I regret nothing. Hadley's a good kid. That's Hadley. One day, Hadley was walking all through the house, refusing to take her mask off for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, and then she demanded gloves. Yeah. She she would not go. And she's seven now. She's a big girl now. But she refuses to take her mask off. She demanded gloves. Well, she takes it off now. Well, just yeah, that but one day. she that one day she would refuse to take her mask off, and then she demanded that mom give her some gloves. And apparently, she sw- sw- like managed to get a hold of a spray can of Lysol and like hoarded it the rest of the day too. Yeah, and, so. that, and that all started from probably something she saw on TV. It wasn't. Yeah, that's just how I'm she sure. is. Yeah, yeah, she's 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 a funny little kid. Yeah. Well, let's move on to something a little bit more not so. Krampus and like that. <sighs> Let's talk about some mistletoe. So we're going to talk about some different traditions right now. Yeah. Mistletoe is a plant that grows on a whole lot of different trees, including the willow tree, the apple tree, and oak trees you can find it hanging off of. So is it an invasive species? I, I don't think it... Uh, is it like honeysuckle? Like you, it takes over? No, it's not like that. I, th- I think it just grows up there. I don't think oh. it damages or hurts the trees. Oh, nice. When you said evasive, I mean... It, yeah. Yeah, so okay. It's like a it's like a buddy. Uh, maybe like those birds that hang around like the hippos. They don't really... Yeah, whatever. I like it. Cool. Yeah, okay, so the tradition of hanging mistletoe in the house goes back to the times of the ancient druids. It's supposed to possess... Mystical, magical powers which bring good luck to the household and wards off all evil spirits. But it's also used as a sign of love and friendship in Norse mythology. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So when the first Christians came to Western Europe, some tried to ban the use of mistletoe as a decoration in churches, but many of the you know, people still continued to use it. York Minister Church in the UK used to hold a special mistletoe service in the winter where wrongdoers in the city of York could come and be pardoned. Aww. The the custom of kissing under mistletoe comes from it, it does it comes from England. The earliest recorded date of mentioning mentioning kissing under the mistletoe is in 1784 in a musical. There was kissing under the uh, under the mistletoe in the illustrations in the first book version A Christmas Carol published in 1843. And this might have helped to popularize kissing under the mistletoe, which is the tradition that we kind of follow right now. But don't. Don't kiss under the mistletoe or beside the mistletoe. Unless you're wearing your mask. No kissing. There's a plague out in the world. Yeah. So the original custom was that a berry was picked from the sprig of mistletoe before the person could be kissed. When all the berries had gone... 
There could be no more kissing. Hmm. We have plastic mistletoe. We don't we do. have any real mistletoe up yeah, there. Yeah, it's a giant ball. Mistletoe, yeah. I don't think, really grows in a ball. Yeah, but you've kissed me under the mistletoe, so there's that. Yeah, that's true. The name mistletoe comes from two Anglo-Saxon words, mistel, which means dung, <laughs> and tan, which means twig or stick. <laughs> so you could translate mistletoe as poo on a stick. Yeah, I like it. it. You know, it's not exactly <laughs> romantic to be kissing under, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Mistletoe was also hung on the old English decoration of the kissing bowl. Oh, yeah. I never knew mistletoe was literally translated to poop on his dick. Yeah. Now let's talk about my favorite part of this. Uh, yes. Let's. What What is your favorite part of Christmas? If I like Krampus, you like. Cookies. 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 So like many Christmas traditions. Molasses cookies in that's particular. Your, that's your favorite. Like many Christmas traditions, the origin of this delicious custom lies ages ago in solstice rituals conducted long before Christmas became the huge commercial holiday it is today. Winter solstice festivals have been held for eons across the world. From Norway to West Africa, Ireland, to India, groups of people gathered to celebrate the changing of the seasons. And all these celebrations revolved around food because, after all, you had to feast before the famine of the winter. So solstice often meant the arrival of the first frost so animals could be killed and kept safely to eat throughout the winter. And fermented beverages like beer and wine that had been brewed in the spring were finally ready to drink. And as any host knows, a hearty roast and a stiff drink need just one thing to complete the party. Cookies. Dessert. Cookies. Cookies, specifically. By the Middle Ages, the Christmas holiday had overtaken solstice rituals throughout much of present-day Europe. However, the old feast traditions remained and still remain to this day. Spices like nutmeg, cinnamon, and black pepper were just starting to be widely used, and dried exotic fruits like citron, apricots, and dates added sweetness and texture to the dessert tray. Mm. These items, along with ingredients like sugar, lard, and butter, mm. oh, would have been prized as expensive delicacies by medieval cooks. Only on the most important holiday could families afford treats like these, which led to a baking bonanza to pair for, prepare for Christmas. Which we're going to do this week. End. End. Yep. Yeah. And unlike pies or cakes, cookies could easily be shared and given to friends and neighbors. And they could be put in your pocket. Yeah, that's true. Um, I Do you put cookies in your pocket? If I needed to sneak one, I may have done that a time or two. Did you get lint on your cookie? No, my pockets are clean. Oh, okay. Fun fact. The first person allegedly, or the first person credited to make a gingerbread man was none other than Queen Elizabeth I, who ruled England from 1558 to 1603. Well, they went a long time till they got to Elizabeth II, didn't they? They did, yeah. yeah. Um, he, she wanted to make them to give to her courtiers, so she ordered the, the gingerbread cookies to be shaped like little people. Um, but Queen Bess's poor ginger court here didn't have a house to live in until likely around the 1800s. So I guess they, the poor gingerbread men and gingerbread women didn't have any place to stay. The gingerbread house was actually thought to have been inspired by the witch's house and the Brothers Grimm story, Hansel and Gretel, which was written in 1812. That house was described as, quote, built of bread and roofed with cakes, and the window was of transparent sugar, Kind of like my Pop-Tart houses I just made. Kind of. And the window panes were big enough for Gretel to sit on as she was eating them. 
Hmm. So it was a it was a pretty decent sized house. A few things that you might not know about gingerbread. It must have been a big oven. Uh, big enough to fit two kids in. That's true. <laughs> gingerbread is said to have been invented by a monk to help cure indigestion. It's unique in that it uses honey and molasses as the base sweetener instead of sugar. And those monks up in Michigan make jam. Oh, yeah. If you're ever up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, stop by uh, Poor Rock Abbey um, just outside of Copper Harbor, Eagle Harbor. and, uh, it's, past, and it's past Eagle Harbor. And grab some monk jam because it's really good. And they deliver. They mail. Do they? Yeah, you can order it online. Oh, go go Google up Poor Rock Abbey and uh, and order some jam from the monks. It is tradition that unmarried women, all the single ladies, listen up. Unmarried women in England would often eat gingerbread men for good luck in meeting a husband. Does it not work? Is that why you're wah wah wahing? Yeah, well, tr- trickery. Oh well. In Sweden, gingerbread was thought to have brought good luck, and people would use them to make wishes. Um, a doctor once wrote a prescription for gingerbread for the Swedish king to cure his depression. And the so gingerbread is a good it's a good uh, good thing to have around. I like gingerbread. The largest gingerbread house in the world, currently reigning champion, sixty feet by forty two feet. <laughs> It's constructed with 1,800 Hershey bars, 1,200 feet of Twizzlers, 100 pounds of Tootsie Rolls, 100 Whirly Pops, thousands of other assorted candies, or yeah, candies. And don't look at it. Don't look at the notes. Do you want to guess how many calories it has? No. The whole thing? Yeah. Oh, I have no clue. 35 million calories. Well, I won't be eating that whole thing in one sitting anyway. I mean, it's 60 feet by 42 feet. Okay, so if you want to make a gingerbread house, but you don't want to go to all the trouble of baking gingerbread or stuff like this. This is a good life hack. Yeah, because I did this with all the grandkids. I made um, Pop-Tart houses and just... It was really simple and easy. And they look really good, too. They look really cool because the frosting. Use the strawberry because it's got the right Christmas colors in it. Mm-hmm. It looks but, like it's covered in snow. And, and, really... w- and it was fun. And for the kids of that age, it really it kept their attention for a long time. And they've got like their little pop down, their Pop-Tart villages up and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It looks really cool. It's, it is pretty neat. It's quick and easy. And they, they tend to, it seemed like the Pop-Tarts tended to stay up better than pieces of gingerbread that I've seen. It was all the icing that I used. Wilton is, I read somewhere, the number one manufacturer of gingerbread um, house kits. Yeah. But if you want a little fun project to use with young kids or grandkids or something like that. They're really just, cute. Yeah, just just go to YouTube or something like that. and Is that where you got it from? I, I saw it on Facebook, mm-hmm. but I had to go back to a YouTube to look at it one more time. But it, it's it's some fun. All it's kinds of because like if you really think about it, all the different kinds of pop tarts. There's like those blue pop tarts with purple swirls. It's like wildberry pop tarts or something like that. So you could really make some really diverse, cool looking houses with your yeah, pop tarts. Really simple for the kids and fun to yeah. decorate. Yeah, okay. cool. All right, so now let's move on to the Christmas tree. So oh, the story Christmas of Christmas tree, tree goes back. A long time to the use of evergreens in ancient Egypt and Rome. Now, who would have known there'd be so much backstory 
to the Christmas tree. Now, there's a lot of, if you remember the Christmas truce story, isn't that kind of what started it? Was that they put up Christmas trees? Yeah, they, they did. But, but they put up the Christmas trees. Of course, they were the Germans at that point. Well, but that's what trenches. I'm saying. Yeah. Like, didn't they put up the Christmas trees? And then the British were like, we can't shoot guys that are putting up Christmas trees. Yeah, but we're going to go into the backstory about the Christmas trees. Well, no, but you said who would have known that there was so much to a Christmas tree. Christmas trees are super important. That's all I'm saying. Okay. So, long before the beginning of Christianity, plants and trees that remain green all year had a special meaning for people during the winter. I mean, I guess it gets gloomy, and just to see the evergreens and the greens, it it, it brightened up the houses. Like, even this year, with just with everything going on, it was like at Thanksgiving. Yo, yeah, we are hard. Not not just us, but everywhere. People are putting up their Christmas decorations and everything just to... Try to bring a little cheer into this year right now. We are now. hardcore post-Thanksgiving tree people, and we put it up at the beginning of November. Yeah. So, just like people today decorate their homes during the holiday seasons with pine, spruce, fir trees, people of old times hung evergreen boughs over their doors and their windows. So, um, that is one thing that I noticed. Have you noticed this year, too? Not only did people put up their trees and stuff earlier, I've seen a lot more of the live wreaths and evergreen stuff this year than I ever have before. Yeah, It seems like there's a lot more. I mean, you see people decorating their houses with the fake garland, which is what we use, but I've noticed a lot more places are selling the live stuff, and people seem to be buying it. Yeah, I mean, it's just everywhere you look. The neighborhoods, if you drive around... If, if Governor Devine, if you are listening, please turn off for a second and fast forward. We have broken curfew at 10 o'clock to Several go out times. and to drive around and just look at the Christmas lights. So, okay. Ooh, we didn't talk about Christmas lights. Yeah, well. That's all right. Okay. So, in many countries, it is, it's believed that evergreens will keep away witches, ghosts, evil spirits, and illness. North of the equator, where we are in the northern hemisphere, the shortest day and therefore the longest night of the year is December 21st. And that is called the winter solstice, or we more commonly just say it's the first day of winter. Many ancient people believed that the sun was on a that the sun was a god and that winter came every year because the sun god had become sick and weak. They celebrated the solstice because it meant that at last, the sun god would begin to eat well. Days would start getting longer again. Evergreen boughs reminded them of all the green plants that would grow again when the sun god was strong and summer would return. The ancient Egyptians worshipped a god called Ra, who had the head of a hawk and wore the sun as a blazing disc in his crown. At the winter solstice, when Ra began to recover from his illness, the Egyptians filled their homes with green palm rushes, which symbolized for them triumph of life over death. Now, I don't know why it's so amazing to me, because, I don't know, it it just is, but we know that people of all lands and cultures knew astrology, and they studied the stars, and they studied the heavens. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's just really remarkable about how much knowledge and recorded knowledge they had about this and we're able to trace and navigate and do stuff off the stars. I mean, right now we go out and we look at it and we can identify a couple constellations. We know a couple stars. But yeah, there were people that this was their full-time job 
to know about this in stuff. In a way, it kind of makes me sad because I feel like a lot of knowledge has been lost. I feel like the things that now, uh, not all of the things, obviously, but I feel like it seems like a lot of the the things that now only astronomers and, and scientists know. And our are, friend Mark. And our friend Mark. Yeah. Um, th- those are probably fairly common knowledge to people back in the day. Um, but we just, um, most people don't, I would say you know, a lot of people don't seem to take the time to study I, the stars. But anymore. I know I noticed when I was stationed at Fort Irwin, and I was out a lot in the desert, and mm-hmm. and you know with no roof, and you know we'd just be out there doing our thing. We did pay, I did at least a lot more attention to the stars and what was going on because there's a lot of stuff that happens in the night. There's satellites. You see some pretty strange things happen out there that. You know, I, I, I don't want to say it's UFOs, but <laughs> you see a lot of strange things that I can't explain. But well, that's probably part of it too. Is you get the light pollution from cities and stuff, yeah. where you're and out did, in the desert, you can't really. And they didn't have nothing else around. TV and Netflix and right, so you cell have phones and stuff else like to that. Do but yeah, stare no, at the sky. Go out there and stare, stare at the stars. The Romans knew that the solstice meant that soon farms and orchards would be green and fruitful again. To mark the occasion, they decorated their homes and temples with evergreen boughs. In northern Europe, the Druids, the priests of the ancient Celts, Celts. also Celts, Celts, mm-hmm. Celts, also decorated their temples with evergreen boughs. Is this like tomato and tomato? No, it's Celts. Okay, as a symbol of <laughs> everlasting life. The Vikings in Scandinavia thought that evergreens were special plants <laughs> of the sun god Balder. No, I'm just thinking of all the others. Like sometimes, and we won't mention certain podcasts, but we we laugh when someone goes through and they mispronounce a word. Thank you for correcting me right, right there with that. Okay. Celts, Celts, whatever. The Germans are credited with starting... Celts is like what you have when you when you have a stomach issue and you drink... Seltzer. Drink Celts. Okay. The Germans... Germans are credited with starting. That. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> okay, the Germans are credited with starting the Christmas tree tradition as we know it in the 16th century, when devout Christians bought and decorated trees uh, into their homes. Some built Christmas pyramids of wood and decorated them with evergreens and candles if wood was scarce. It's widely believed now that Martin Luther, who was the uh, the famous 16th century Protestant reformer, first added lights or candles to the Christmas tree. Which has always baffled me. How do you keep them from getting setting your tree on fire? Well, maybe back then the houses were all of stone and it didn't... If it caught on fire, it just burned. I don't know. Huh. But that, that has amazed me how they had to be very careful how to do that. Cause yeah. But, you know, I don't think they took the trees and kept them up for, put them in, you know, up the beginning of November. It's probably like a day or two so they were fresh and they didn't catch on fire. I would, I think it would be a cool idea to plant a Christmas tree in the middle of your house. And when you build your house and build your house around the Christmas tree and just watch your Christmas tree grow. Your palm tree just died. Oh my gosh, you had to go there, didn't you? Okay. The story goes... (laughs) that um, he was on his way home one winter evening composing a sermon, which I guess that's that was his job. He was awed by the brilliance of stars and twinkling amidst the evergreens as he was looking up, and just and he just saw that. And it kind of, you know, it, it, it struck him. To share the scene with his family, he put up a tree in the main room of his house and wired its branches with 
candles that he light that he lit that he lighted. Most of the 19th century Americans found Christmas trees an oddity. The first record of a Christmas tree on display was in the 1830s put up by the German settlers of Pennsylvania. Really? Yep. You know what? That kind of makes sense, though, because didn't the Puritans, like, wasn't Christmas? They didn't celebrate Christmas. I'll I'll get to that. Okay. Okay. Uh, This had been a tradition in many German homes much earlier, but they didn't continue their tradition here until much later. The Pennsylvania German settlements had community trees as early as 1747, but as late as the 1840s, Christmas trees were seen as pagan symbols and not accepted by most Americans. It's not surprising... That, like many other festive Christmas um, customs, the tree was adopted so late in America. And I think we can, like, get into what you were saying, we can attribute this to the Puritans. Mm -hmm. To the New England Puritans, Christmas was sacred. The Pilgrim's second governor, William Bradford, wrote that he tried hard to stamp out pagan mockery of the observance, penalizing any frivolity. Then uh, there was the very influential Oliver Cromwell preached against the heathen traditions of Christmas carols, uh, decorating trees, and any joyful expression that desecrated the the sacred event. Which is silly. You can't be joyful at the birth of Jesus Christ. Well... Not, not if you're I mean, I get it. I get it. I just, I think it's silly. Yeah, times change. That's true. So in 1659, the General Court of Massachusetts enacted a law making any observance of December 25th, other than a church service, a penal offense. People were fined for putting up Christmas decorations. Those stern rules continued until the 19th century when the popular royals, Queen Victoria and her German prince, Albert, were sketched in the Illustrated London News standing with their children around a Christmas tree in 1846. So the times are all kind of coming together right here with what's going on in America. Unlike the previous royal family, Victoria was very popular with her subjects, and what was done at court immediately became fashionable, not only in Britain, but with the fashion-conscientious East Coast American society. The Christmas tree had arrived to the American shores. By the 1890s, Christmas ornaments were coming over to America from Germany, and Christmas tree popularity was on the rise in the United States. Europeans used small trees about four feet in height, while Americans liked their Christmas trees to reach all the way from the floor to the ceiling. Of course they did. The earliest, well, maybe that's helped um, when uh, Martin Luther brought in the tree, maybe just bought in a little tree. So it was easy to throw out of the house if it caught on fire. Yeah, that's true. The early 20th century saw Americans decorating their trees mainly with homemade ornaments, while the German-Americans continued to use apples, nuts, and marzipan cookies. Popcorn joined in with the festivities after being dyed bright colors and interlaced with berries and nuts. I've never seen anybody do that in real life. I, I have seen people... Do popcorn. I don't. I, it's been a long, long time, but I remember people like popping like popcorn. We do that. We should bring that back. Well, you'll stick yourself. I, that's probably true. Thomas Edison's, and I'm not saying that to be mean. I just know the. No, chemist. you're you're right. Thomas Edison's assistants came up with the idea of electric lights for Christmas trees. That and that was the beginning of us putting electric lights. On our Christmas trees. So wait, are you trying to tell me that Thomas Edison invented light just for Christmas trees? No, I'm saying Thomas Edison's assistants 
came up with the idea of oh, electric lights. You said it right. I said it right. <laughs> yeah. So with this new development, Christmas trees begin to appear in town squares. You shouldn't make fun of me like this. You said it wrong the first time. I did. It was really cute. Across the country. And having a Christmas tree in the home became an American tradition. We actually were You getting, better not mess up. I, I, I'm flawless. We actually were talking about this just last night and how I, I really don't think that if it, was, if it wasn't for you, if I wasn't married to you, I don't think I would bother with a Christmas tree. Like if I was just single by myself with a dog, I would probably not bother. And you said that that was sad. That's, that's very sad. Why? It just is. Because you're the one that wanted to put the trees up and everything up. Well, Beginning okay. of November. But that's only because we have a perfect spot for it right now. Okay. Anyway. Let's get on to the fun one. Yeah. So one of the newer traditions on our list is a pretty divisive one. Created by stay-at-home mom Carol Abersold and her twin daughters Chandra Bell and Krista Pitts, the Elf on the Shelf poem was written in 2004. Wait, wait. Was her name Karen? No, Carol. Oh. <laughs> What the world is going on? The Elf on the Shelf poem introduces the friendly scout elf who watches boys and girls during the Christmas season and then flies back to the North Pole each night to nark to Santa. (laughs) Rat. Elf spies. Snitches get stitches. The elf spies from a different place each day, so it's up to the kids to find and avoid that area at all costs so the elf can't see when they're being naughty. If a child touches the elf... It loses its power, and then there's an elaborate ritual involving cinnamon and sugar that will heal the scout elf so it can continue its nefarious work. Uh, you can actually find all kinds of different things about this on the Elf on the Shelf website. In all seriousness, though... Um, In all seriousness? <laughs> the actual story behind the Elf on the Shelf juggernaut is a rags-to-riches story worthy of a Hallmark movie. So Mom Carol said that the elf, who her family had named Fisbee, was part of her childhood growing up, and that it originally just hung out on the Christmas tree to watch the family, kind of like an ornament. Well, when Carol had kids of her own, she now started... Now we got Krampus. <laughs> he watches us while we sleep. Um, when Carol had kids of her own, though, she started the tradition of moving Fisbee each night so that the kids would be really excited to find him the next day. And in 2004, daughter Chandra was a new mom who'd left her teaching position to care for her son. Her dad, Bob, offered her a part-time job in his small engineering and fabrication firm where Chandra made $180 every two weeks. Um, Now, remember, this is in 2004. She said she felt like she was rich. So I don't know the details of Chandra's personal life. I don't know if her son was special needs or something, and that's why she had to quit working to take care of him. Um, But, you know, things were kind of tight. And because the firm wasn't close to home, Chandra and her son would usually stay with her parents one night a week. And so it was on one of those nights that Chandra looked up and saw Fisby and suggested that her mom write a story about him. Now, Carol was having her own problems at the time with health issues and some financial hardship from the family business, so it seemed like a good way to take her mind off of things. And then after the story was finished, uh, Carol and Chandra sent it off to several publishing houses but were pretty much universally rejected. So... They self-published. Like you can do anything on the internet now. Yeah. In 2005, mother and daughter invited twin Krista on board, and she left her job at QVC and sold her house in Pennsylvania to move in with her parents in Georgia. Chandra took out a line of credit. 
Krista put forth money from the sale of her house, and Carol cleaned out her retirement account to start their own publishing house, Creatively Classic Activities and Books. That is a huge risk. Like, they gambled on Fisbee big time. They published 5,000 copies of their book, illustrated by local watercolor artist Koei Steinwart. For the next couple of years, the women sold their Elf on the Shelf kits at a local trade sh- at local trade shows and markets, and they also sold their product online and appeared at bookstores to share the story of the Elf on the Shelf. 2007 marked a turning point. So this is where it's proof that famous people are good at selling stuff. In November of 2007, actress Jennifer Garner was photographed carrying an Elf on the Shelf box in New York. The following month, the Today Show ran a segment on the Elf on the Shelf, and from there, the ladies were flooded with calls and orders, and more bookstores and and toy stores started selling their product. Now, 13 years later, over 13 million toys have been sold, and not just elves either. They have, um, there's elves in all different ethnicities, colors, male elves, female elves. They have pets. They have clothes. The company is worth more than $85 million. Good for them. So don't be an elf on the shelf hater is the moral of this story. I am so excited. Like this is a family business. I'm ready to go out and buy another elf on the shelf. We have an elf on the shelf. Her name is Snowflake. Or no, her name is Jingle Bell. Just kidding. (laughs) Her name is Jingle Bell. And she is currently hanging out on a light near our tree. Um, but I, I was kind of ambivalent about Elf on the Shelf. I love the rags to riches stories. I do. The And it was like, this one is a great one because it's a family. It's a mom and her they, two do- twin daughters. They risked everything for this. Literally everything. Yep. Like the one girl, Krista, she, she just sold her entire house, like just gave up her entire life and moved in because she and her mom and her sister had a dream and they followed it and they made it happen. I love this story. So I am now pro-elf. Hmm. I am too. After Good. hearing that, I am pro-elf. So Good. Christmas caroling. And it, you know, we, we this is stuff that we know about, but I'm glad we're doing this because there's so much backstory to all this mm-hmm. stuff of, of how it came about. And Absolutely. So to me, it's interesting. I hope, you know, out there, wherever you're at, you're listening, say, I didn't know that. I'm glad I listened to this episode yeah. of An Hour of Your Life. Now maybe you'll be pro-elf too. Yeah. So Christmas caroling as we know it dates back to the 19th century, but not much further back than that. Really? Really. In fact, caroling, caroling itself didn't always involve Christmas. And the, the tradition of traveling from house to house to wish neighbors good cheer didn't always involve singing. There's a distinction to be made between carols, songs stemming from the medieval um, musical traditions, and today's Christmas caroling, says Daniel Abraham, who is a musicology expert and uh, choral director at American University in Washington, D.C. There's some good credentials. Yes, he knows what he's talking about. The concept of carol in its origins has actually nothing to do with Christmas, Abraham says. Medieval carols were... Church songs reserved for uh, processionals in the 12th and 13th centuries. What's another word for church? Like liturgical? Yeah, that would be a good word to use right there. <laughs> <laughs> if you only knew. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank goodness for okay. edits. <laughs> 
And though modern carols sometimes take their form from these original songs, original carols, starting with a refrain followed by verses of uniform structure, they're separate entities. The tradition of going door-to-door to different homes comes from a different tradition altogether, albeit similar to an ancient one. In England, the word wassail derived from the Old Norse Ves Heil, meaning be well and in good health, came to mean the wishing of good fortune on your neighbors. No one is quite sure where the custom began, but it did give us a song, Here We Come a Wassling, sung as carolers wished good cheer to their neighbors in hopes of getting a gift in return. Um, a wassling also in, evolved into the popular We Wish You a Merry Christmas, and its last verse uh, bring us some figgy pudding stems from the wasslers, the original intent. Now, I have also heard... Figgy pudding is gross. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever had any figgy pudding. I think we made figgy pudding that one time. Or we bought some. No, we bought some. I would never make figgy pudding. We did find some figgy pudding one year at Christmas because we wanted to try it because of this song. And I think that you liked it okay, but I just couldn't. I think it was a textural thing for me. I well, didn't like it. When I was growing up in Grove City, we had neighbors that would come along and um, they they would go caroling. And typically what would happen, they would come to your door. They would knock on the door. I mean, we expected them every year on Christmas Eve. The whole family would come. Aww. And they would knock on the door and we would have hot chocolate and cookies Prepared, so nice. and so they they would come in. You know, they would stand out there and they would sing one or two Christmas songs, and then my mom and dad would invite them in. We would give them hot chocolate, and we'd all just sit around and talk about. Oh. Yeah, and, and it was just a good tradition so of growing fun. up back. You know, back in back in the day, it just. I think how we it was. should bring that back. Let's go door to door and sing a song and demand cookies. My mandolin would not stay in tune. It doesn't matter. We can do it a cappella. Okay. The two traditions of singing and visiting first merged in Victoria, England, as church carols began to merge with Christian folk music. At that time, it was far from a Christmas tradition. Festivals like May Day were deemed worthy of caroling, too, but the repertoire was, as well as early records of this, are pretty unclear. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard a May Day song. No. In 19th century, uh, maybe if you're in Russia... Old Soviet Russia, May Day was a big day for the Soviets. Was it? Yeah. In the 19th century, as Christmas became more commercialized and popular, publishers began churning out anthologies of carols, many which were ancient hymns, also circulating them in sheet music. Many of our today's most popular carols date to this period. Christmas carols, ancient and modern, published by London British lawyer, William B. Sandys in 1833 was the first to print God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, The First Noel, and Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Joy to the World, first appeared in the Anglican Church hymnal, Hymns Ancient and Modern, in 1861. Hark the Herald Angels Sing is your favorite. That, that is my absolute favorite Christmas carol. Yes, it is. Composed by Isaac Watts, known as the father of English hymnody. The song actually wasn't written exclusively for singing at Christmas time. Charles Wesley's Hark the Herald Angels Sing was originally Hark How All the Welkin Rings. Hmm. Welkin means sky or heaven and came to mean making a loud sound. Hmm. Didn't know that, did you? I did not. I know you didn't. 
the Oxford Book of Carols again, <laughs> thanks to editing. <clears throat> uh, the Oxford Book, Book of, of Carols. Carols, first published in 1928, was a landmark book that combined medieval carols, folk songs, and Christmas songs from around the world, publishing 201 of them in a 700-page volume. What kind of commas did they use in that book? They probably used Oxford commas. Hmm. An updated version of the new Oxford Book of Carols was published in 1992. I bet they didn't use the Oxford comma in that one. I bet they did. We'll have to look that one up in a minute. Team Oxford comma all the way. American caroling is far less common than it used to be, says Bob Thompson, professor of popular culture at Syracuse University. It's not unusual to see carolers standing now in the shopping mall or a churchyard, but as far as for the random groups of friends traipsing to your doorsteps for singing, don't count on it. You talk to most baby boomers, and they might have a caroling story or two, says Thompson. Talk to anyone born after 1960 or so, and it's become much less common. Simply put, times and cultures have changed. The singing of Christmas carols at a stranger's door assumes a similarity of culture among carolers and audiences, says Charles Brunel, an assistant professor of classics at St. Olaf College. Times change. Many people may not know who their neighbors are in suburbia as we now know it as suburbia has grown. The town you live in may be more now of a suitcase community and not of a small town or the traditional neighborhood, which we picture of like when we looked at you know the Norman Rockwell pictures on the Saturday yeah. Evening Post. It's just times yeah. have changed. And well, and now we have show like channels like Investigation Discovery with shows like The Killer Next Door. And so you, people don't want to go get to know their neighbors because they could be psychopaths. Yeah. I think our neighbors are pretty good, though. Our neighbors are awesome. Our neighbors, our neighbors, awesome. Our neighbors buy Christmas presents for our cats. Yes, they which did. Is, it was super sweet. Do you want to tell that story? Did we tell that story? No, we didn't. But it's, we okay. should. It's a heartwarming story. We should so, tell that story. So the little neighbor girls two doors down, and the neighbor girls next door, they come down. All the it, it's not unusual to look out the front window and see four little girls out in our front yard playing and petting with our cats. And our cats are They're, really kid friendly cats. Yeah, I mean, they live outside year round. We should probably. Tell, they have their tell claws. That. They have their claws. Um, Steve has built them a super fancy kitty condo. With uh, like Rubbermaid boxes, and um, he put pi- pillow. pillows in them and a heated blanket. So these cats have the life. Yeah, you go out there any night, and they are just sitting very comfortably. Yeah, in their cat condo. So, but these little girls, though. Yeah, they're like three, four. Yeah, so they they their mom came down and knocked on the door, and we went to the door, and she said. That, you know, they just wanted to. Uh, they they love your kitties so much. They wanted to get them a Christmas gift. And they brought them like little cat snacks. So they we, bought them little cat treats and wrapped it in everything. It was the cutest thing yeah. ever. And so we called Polly and B, and of course they came running because they're just that kind of cat. They're almost like dogs. They kind of are. And uh, they let the girls feed them their treats. It was, it was the cutest thing it was, ever. It was really cute. Yeah. So now let's just move on. Like we said, we're going to cover like three major, we're going to talk about um, Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah next show. Christianity, the, the, Christmas, the Christmas story. story. Yeah. Um, but then tonight, I kind of wanted to talk about Kwanzaa. Um, so we're actually kind of putting the latest December holiday in the earliest part of our series, mostly because it's actually the newest of the three major holidays. 
Now, Kwanzaa is a week-long celebration that's held in the United States and it honors African heritage and African-American culture. Kwanzaa is observed from December 26th to January 1st, and it culminates in gift-giving and, of course, a big feast because you can't have anything this time of year without a big feast. Can I stop for one second? Sure. Because we can't leave off the next-door neighbors next door. They love these little cats so much that they got them stuffed animals and, and the little girls uh, named them after they, our Yeah, cats. and their dad came over and said, I hope you're not offended at this, but they named their cats Bee and Polly. And They're little was, stuffed animals. This was the week that we moved in, yeah. so like it was brand new. Okay, back to Kwanzaa. Anyway, um, Kwanzaa was created by Professor, and I apologize in advance if I butcher any of these names or words. Uh, they're all African names, and I am not familiar with Swahili, which is what the Kwanzaa traditions are based on. Professor Dr. Maulana Karenga is who created Kwanzaa. It was a response to the Watts riots in 1965, and it was intended to bring African-Americans together as a community. So Dr. Karenga researched African harvest celebrations and combined aspects of several different celebrations, such as the Ashanti and those of the Zulu, to form the foundation of Kwanzaa. Now, the name Kwanzaa is derived from the phrase Matunda Ya Kwanzaa, which means first fruits or harvest in Swahili. Celebrations often include singing and dancing, storytelling, poetry reading, African drumming, and, of course, the aforementioned feasting. Every festival has to have feasting. Agreed. There are seven guiding principles that form the backbone of the Kwanzaa celebration, and each is represented by a candle that's lit each day, and the candles are held in a holder called a kinara, and they're red, black, and green. On the first night, the black candle is lit, and the principle of umoja is discussed. Umoja is the concept that African Americans should strive for and maintain unity in the family, community, nation, and race. The other nights in order of celebration are... Kuji Chagulia, which is self-determination, and that's def- defined as def- um, to define ourselves, name ourselves, create for ourselves, and speak for ourselves. Next night is Ujima, collective work and responsibility, to build and maintain our community together and make our brothers and sisters' problems our problems and solve them together. Next night is Ujama'a, Cooperative economics, to build and maintain our own stores, shops, and other businesses to profit from them together. Nia, which is purpose, to make our collective vocation the building and developing of our community in order to restore our people to their traditional greatness. Kuumba, which is creativity, to always do as much as we can in the way that we can in order to leave our community more beautiful and beneficial than we inherited it. Imani, which is faith, to believe with all our heart in our people, our parents, our teachers, our leaders, in the righteousness and victory of our struggle. And then there are seven core symbols of Kwanzaa. First is Mazao, Mazao, which is crops. Uh, Mazao symbolizes the fruits of collective planning and work and the resulting joy, sharing, unity, and thanksgiving part of African harvest festivals. So to demonstrate it, people place nuts, fruits, and vegetables representing work on the mkeka. The mkeka is a placemat, so just as the crops stand on them, the present day stands on the past. It symbolizes the historical and traditional foundation for people to stand on and build their lives. So there's a lot of symbolism, and even though it's a newer holiday, there's a lot that goes into Kwanzaa. Uh, Muhindi is the ear of corn. 
The stalk of corn represents fertility and the idea that through children, the future hopes of the family are brought to life, which is kind of a lot to put on a kid, but that's the way it goes in every culture. One vibunzi is placed on the mat for every child in the family. Mishuma'a saba, the seven candles. Candles are ceremonial objects that serve to symbolically recreate the sun's power as well as to provide light. There are three red candles, three green candles, and then the one black candle that are placed on the kinara, which is the candle holder. It represents ancestry and the original stock from which we came. Kikombe cha umoja, which is the unity cup. On the sixth day of Kwanzaa, the libation ritual is performed to honor the ancestors. Every family member and guest will take a drink together as a gift or as a sign of unity and remembrance. And again, if you celebrate our Kwanzaa this year, um, I would ask that you not drink from the same kukombe. Uh, maybe get your own. Don't pass the one around. Zawadi are gifts. On the seventh day of Kwanzaa, gifts are given to encourage growth, achievement, and success. Handmade gifts are encouraged to promote self-determination, purpose, and creativity. There's also, again, a big feast because after all, no matter what you're celebrating, December is all about the food. So there you go. There's the history and the symbolism of Kwanzaa, which is there's a lot to it. Like I said, apologies uh, if I butchered any of those Swahili words. Um, I have never learned to speak Swahili. Well, that was really interesting because I didn't know that much about the history of Kwanzaa. Uh Next week, we will be talking about Hanukkah and the traditions, not so much of Hanukkah itself, but what was going on in that time frame. Yeah, the and it's it's interesting. Um, I I don't know, um, but I suspect that possibly the Kinara was inspired a little bit by the menorah. Um, they have very similar setups yeah. as far as the candles and all of that kind I of thing. Don't I don't know, know. Don't even want to speculate. I don't know. But right now, I want to go ahead and talk about something because next week we'll be talking about Hanukkah. But the, what I want to talk about right now is purely a Christian thing. But if we wait till the next week. It, it, there won't be enough time to get this out. And this is yeah, kind of an important thing. So I want to talk about something that has not happened in 800 years. And we're Ooh. talking about the Christmas star. On December 21st of this year, Jupiter and Saturn will be aligned. Although 2,000 years ago at the birth of Christ, it is believed that Venus and Jupiter aligned to be the Christmas star. The nativity story in the Gospel of Matthew says that after Jesus was born, King Herod had a meeting with the priest and asked them where Jesus was. They told him that he was in Bethlehem. Well, Herod sent them out, and then Herod had a secret meeting with the Magi, or the three wise men as we know, and asked them when the star first appeared. Because we know we talked about earlier, you know, these were people that actually studied and looked at the stars and knew a lot about this. So they told him when the star first appeared, and so then he sent the wise men to find Jesus He told them so that he could go and worship him. So the Magi, the three wise men, followed the star until it stopped over where Jesus was. They worshipped him and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it came time for them to leave, they went home by a different route because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now, I don't think Herod actually wanted to go and worship Jesus. Probably not. We're going to learn think, about that at Christmas yeah, time. Yeah, I think Herod wanted There's to go and kill Jesus because <laughs> Herod wasn't going to have any competition for what uh, he nope. believed his earthly throne. He was not a good guy. No. Um, 
So if you want a chance to see the Christmas star, you need to be looking in the southwest sky. If you're in the northern hemisphere, uh, look in the northwest sky. NASA says um, look fast because the planets will not will only be aligned for a short time after sunset. So you can watch for the two planets moving in conjunction with each other in the western sky between the 15th and 18th of December. While the planets may look close, they're actually millions of miles apart. So they're saying the best time to see this is about 45 minutes after sunset on the 21st. And um, this hasn't happened so in 800 years. So I'm really interested. It's I'm hoping so interesting. Yeah, I'm hoping there's no clouds that night. Uh yeah, same. And it's so interesting. I feel like if it's 2020 and on the winter solstice, the Christmas star is uh, is happening for the first time in 800 years. If, if this is not a sign of the second coming, I don't know what it is, <laughs> is all I'm saying. So get right if that's what you believe in. All right. So we got a few minutes left here. How about, how about some Christmas trivia? All right. Sounds okay. good. Christmas trees have been sold commercially in the United States since about 1850. In 1979, the national Christmas tree was not lighted except for the top ornament, and that was done in honor of the American hostages in Iran. Between 1880... I don't think anybody's playing trivia out, like in the pubs or anything like that right now. Probably not. There might be some online stuff. Mm. Between 1887 and 1933, a fishing schooner called the Christmas Ship would tie up at the Clark Street Bridge and sell spruce trees from Michigan to people from Chicago. Oh, fun. The tallest living Christmas tree is believed to be the 122-foot, 91-year-old Douglas fir in the town of Woodenville, Washington. How about that one? That Okay. I, how do they know, really? I mean, seriously, how do you know? I'm sure. What are they called? Tree scientists? Yeah. Arborists. Arborists. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure arborists know. The Rockefeller it. Center Christmas tree tradition began in 1933. Franklin Pierce, the 14th president, brought the Christmas tree tradition to the White House. Oh. Yeah. In 1923, President Calvin Coolidge started the National Christmas Tree Lighting Ceremony that's now held every year on the White House lawn. All right. So that's enough trivia for right now. But um, we'll save some. We'll save some of these trivia's for next week. Yeah. How's that? Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of an hour of your life. Hope you've mm-hmm. learned something. I I certainly I learned did a lot. Yeah. So Kim. Yes. If someone wanted to get hold of us, how would they do it? You can find us on all the socials. On Twitter, we are at a lost hour. On Instagram and Facebook, we are an hour of your life. And you can write to us, um, Gmail. Um, a lost hour at gmail.com. So when you're recommending to a friend, hey, I found this really neat podcast called An Hour of Your Life, your friend's going to say, well, where can I find them? You can say... Everywhere. Everywhere. iHeartRadio. Yeah. Google, Apple Podcast, Podbean, all of them. We're there. A-L-E-X-A. Uh, yeah, I don't want to say it because she's it listening. Because she's listening, she'll hear us. Um, and also, if I say S-I-R-I... Yeah, she's listening. She's too. listening too. Also, guys, we have a ton of stickers. 
Um, if you want one, drop us a line and I'll send you one. As a we Christmas won't even present. sell them. It'll just be a Christmas present. Yeah, it's a Christmas present. We have a ton of them. So just if you want one, just uh, email me or send me a message on Facebook or Instagram. I'm cheap. Send send or, send a self step. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I will mail it to you. Um, just send me, drop me a line. Let me know how many you want, and I'll I'll send. I mean, within reason, and I'll send you some. They're yeah. they're not big. They're like two by two squares, but they're our logo. All right, so. It doesn't feel like Christmas. It's oh, it was almost Kinda sixty warm. degrees out there right day, but it's supposed to get cold. Was it really that warm out today? Yeah, it was. It was sixty degrees outside. I had the windows open, wow. aired out the house, and got rid of all the COVIDs in the house. So look, <laughs> as as we are coming closer, the world is coming closer to a vaccination. You know, use use your own. You got to decide what you're going to do between you and your doctor if you're going to take the vaccination. So. Ugh, yeah, let's not it, even open that can of worms. Yeah, we're not even going to open up that can of worms. Had an interesting experience on Facebook this week with a Shocking. joke. Shocking! Shocking that you would have something on Facebook. Yeah, I, I I put out a little post. It was meant as a joke. It said something like, "I am absolutely one hundred percent vacation, mandatory vacation, ma- mandatory vacation." Somebody misread it, and it was a whole big thing. Oh, and it got ugly. Ugh, anyway, fast. It got ugly fast. Because someone misread vacation for vaccination. Please. So it's a touchy subject out there, but you got to do what your conscious guides you. Regardless of what you think about vaccinations or vacations, we should all be supporting local. So shop local as much as you possibly can this holiday season. Um, Support your local restaurants. The chains have other people that can support them. Um, but your local mom and pop right down the street really rely on you. So please shop local as much yeah. as humanly possible. So, I mean, we can we can see a light at the end of this tunnel. We just got to hang on, be safe for maybe just a couple more months, and then hopefully we'll be rid of this scourge called COVID. Oh, we can only hope. We can, One can only hope for this one. So from our studios in Little Sugar Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Did I say Little Sugar Creek? You did. Okay, from Sugar Creek, Ohio. (laughs) Still, thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Lots of dot-coms this week for our sources. Wikipedia, History.com, BestGingerbreadHouses.com, CelebrityNetWorth.com, InterExchange.com, WhyChristmas.com, Time Magazine, and The Huffington Post. And Time.com. Well, Time Magazine, found at Time.com. All right. (laughs) Lots of topics, lots of resources. Lots of dot-coms. Lots of dot-coms.